Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We have come to just about the middle of Canto 7 of Purgatorio. Much has happened before us. We're going to have to have a plot review soon of Purgatorio before we hit that big gate ahead of us that lets us into Purgatorio proper. But we're on the outskirts, the suburbs, the exurbs of Purgatory here on the bottom slopes of the mountain. If none of that makes any sense to you, perhaps you should go back and catch up (laughs) to season one of this podcast all about Inferno or even just back to the start of season two, which is Purgatorio. Nonetheless, here we are at line 64 through 81 of Canto 7. This is my English translation of the Florentine. As always, you can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. There you can print it off. You can make comments. You can continue the discussion with me or just read along. In any event, Canto 7, lines 64 through 81 of Purgatorio. We walked on a little ways from there. That's when I saw the mountain was carved out, just as the valleys carve out the mountains around here. The shade of Sordelo said, We'll head over there, where the slope turns into a sort of lap. There we'll wait for the new day. A sloping path, not quite level, but not really steep, brought us to the flank of that valley, where its outer ridge was more than half cut off. Golden fine silver, cochineal, and white lead, indigo gems, bright and clear, even a new emerald the moment it's cut. If any of that were set in that valley, it would all be surpassed when it comes to the color by the flowers and grasses that grew in that spot, as less is surpassed by greater. Nature had not only painted that spot, but had blended the sweet scents of a thousand fragrances into a single indistinguishable aroma that I had never experienced before. We have been led by Sordelo to this beautiful dale on the bottom slopes of Mount Purgatory. We're going to find out who's in this vale in the next episode of the podcast. But if you can remember, Sordelo has told them that they need to find a place to bed down for the night because the night stops any forward ascent on the mountain, although descent is possible. And as we discussed last time, why would you ever want to descend Mount Purgatory? and started all over again. Remember, that was a really hard climb that Dante's already made. So you will yourself to stop. I want to talk through this passage in terms of its beauty. I have two things to say about it because it is one of the first times we get a truly beautiful spot in comedy, many more ahead of us. And I want to talk about what's going on here in terms of Virgil, the Elysian Fields, Virgil's notion of the afterlife, and perhaps Dante's changing notion of the afterlife. They walk on, Sordelo, Virgil, and the pilgrim Dante, although Sordelo has only been talking to Virgil. We walked on a little way from there, the passage says, so it's not too far that they have to go. And you'll notice in this passage, there is much stress placed on the idea that this is not full of effort. This is an 
easy walk. It's a little uphill, but it's not steep. It's not like that climb we had before where they scrambled up the rocks. None of that is going on here, and that might be important to the overall tenor of what lies ahead of us, that is, the people placed in this veil. But it's not difficult. It's just a little ways. And now we come to this bit that the mountain is carved out just as the valleys carve out the mountains around here. And there is a reference as if we see the poet writing at his desk, looking out his window in Verona or Ravenna. Not many mountains in Ravenna, but okay. <laughs> Let's say he's remembering Tuscany. And he's trying to say, well, look, the, you know, there's mountains around here and there's dales in them. It's an interesting bit that this callback to a terrestrial space from this purgatorial space, which is terrestrial. We are on the but still a callback to the land of the living here. And that might also be important because we're about to hit a bunch of people who made dramatic changes, to say the least, to the land of the living. This spot is calling out to Virgil's notion of the Elysian fields in the Aeneid Book 6. We read this in the last episode of the podcast, and I don't want to go back and reread it, but if you remember, there was a day and Anchises was down there, Aeneas and Anchises reunited, and there is much talk of this kind of verdant, beautiful place where people roam about. That is then mirrored here, but with distinct differences. We'll get to that again, I keep saying, in the next episode of this podcast. But for right now, let's just notice that we are coming into a spot that looks very much like the Elysian fields in the Aeneid, and that Sordalo has in fact quoted the Aeneid, if you remember in the last episode of this podcast, to signal us that we are coming to that spot. So Sordalo says we'll go over there or head over there where the slope turns into a sort of lap. In other words, it's beautiful and it's comforting. It's a rest stop, not like something nasty on the highway in the United States, but instead a beautiful place where you'd pull over and look at the view. We'll wait for the new day there, Sordalo says. A sloping path, not quite level, but not really steep, brought us to the flank of that valley where its outer edge was more than half cut off. So this thing has got kind of a declivity in it, and you can get up to the edge of it and see down into it more easily than just staring off the precipice. I think maybe this is a contrast to Inferno, where there were so many steep escarpments, and they looked down into the Malabolge, and they looked down over the edge edge of the cliff toward the Malabolja before Garion arrived. I think all of that is this very precipitous drop threat that goes on in Inferno. And we're being signaled here that this is a much more gentle landscape. But there's a problem and it's right ahead of us. Gold and fine silver, cochineal and white lead, indigo gems, bright and clear, even a new emerald the moment it's cut. If any of these were set in that valley, it would all be surpassed when it comes to the color by the flowers and grasses that grew in the spot 
as less is surpassed by greater. Now, I just want to stop here for a second. This is the first time that Dante really has to describe something gorgeous, something that would attract our attention, as in my previous example, when you pull over beside the road and you look out across a valley or a landscape. This is the first time that Dante has had to do that, to refer to aesthetic beauty. And I want to say... It's very clumsy. I know some people who read the medieval Italian may disagree with me, but I think that if you just look even at it in the Florentine, it's a really clumsy description of the beauty. Just this list, gold and fine silver, cochineal and white lead. And this line, you should just know, is garbled. And I have chosen a translation for it. Indigo gems, bright and clear. There's all kinds of commentary and disagreement on how this line translates. Even a new emerald, the moment it's cut. And this is particularly problematic. Fresco smeraldo, new emerald, fresh emerald. That word fresco, what does that have to do with emerald? A fresh emerald would be one maybe still dirty. It wouldn't necessarily be a beautiful object in and of itself because it hasn't been polished yet. And I think Dante wants us to feel freshness and newness, but the imagery doesn't quite land, I think, the way he wants it to. And it goes on that they would all be surpassed when it comes to the color by the flowers and grasses that grew in that spot, as less is surpassed than greater. That phrase, even in the Florentine, is so awkward and it's so unvisualized. It's very uncharacteristic of Dante. As less is surpassed by greater, what? That may have some thematics for what lies ahead of us, but that doesn't express anything aesthetically pleasing. That just says better art is better than poor art. Well, yeah, duh, better art is better than poor art. It doesn't actually add anything to the ongoing description of this place. And I just want to stop here and say this. This is my interpretation, and you can argue with me about this. I think Dante has become quite adept at describing the horrible. (laughs) We know this from Inferno. He's become quite the master of describing terror and pain and sorrow and weeping. All of this is completely in his wheelhouse. Beauty is not. I believe that over the course of Purgatorio, before we get to Paradiso, Dante has to figure out how to write about beauty. And I think that this first attempt is a little awkward. Two ways we can go with this. We can say that Dante is intentionally awkward here to show us that the poet is being schooled in beauty over the course of the poem. That's fair, but I think it's a little bit, uh, I don't know what, it's a little bit wanting to keep Dante a saint. It's a little bit wanting to keep him an oracle rather than a working poet. I prefer to see it as the poet has to figure out how to talk about beauty intelligently and 
beautifully. He has to figure out how to use words to convey beauty. And he stumbles a bit at this first attempt. He's going to get much, much better at it. And by the time we get up to the top of Paradiso, he's going to be a master of it. The passage finishes off. Nature had not only painted that spot, but had blended the sweet scents of a thousand fragrances into a single indistinguishable aroma that I had never experienced before. That's a little better, but it's still not right. Indistinguishable aroma? I don't know what that means. I don't know what, what are you smelling? Help me know. Yeah, I get it. All these flowers have come up into a bouquet of aromas that have melded into one thing. I get that. But what is it? A better poet, and Dante will become this poet, a better poet would be able to land that aroma. It is the aroma of X. Now, I'm not a poet, and that is a really hard thing to do. If you come up to a blended aroma that is indistinguishable from other aromas, but yet is something I've never experienced before, but yet is very, very sweet and pleasing, what is that smell? How do you define it without jumping out to the negative, indistinguishable, never experienced before. How do you define it in the positive? This is poetic skill and poetic craft. And I don't know that Dante has it fully in hand in this passage. I know that he wants us to see this Dale as beautiful. I don't know that he fully succeeds in making it beautiful. And there's a second problem here, and this is the big one, so let's talk it through. There's no question, given Sordelo's reference to the Aeneid, and given what this place looks like, that, in fact, we are nearing the Virgilian Elysian fields. And, in fact, we even posited in the last episode that perhaps Sordelo says to Virgil, you're going to be really excited, get a lot of delight out of seeing who's there. And we posited this notion via Hollander that maybe Virgil will be excited to see who's really there since he put other people there in the Aeneid. Seems a little stretched, but it could be the case. You know, it could be one way to see it. But there's no question, given Sordelo's reference and given what's happening here and given how it's explained, that this is the Elysian fields from the Aeneid. Here's the problem. We already had the Elysian fields. They were limbo. Back in those episodes on the <laughs> Canto of Limbo in Inferno, we talked endlessly about the Elysian fields and about coming into this great place where the great philosophers and thinkers all hang out and how it was resonating with the Elysian fields, which means that the Elysian fields are being redefined. If we thought that that spot in Inferno limbo was the Elysian fields. Now we're being told, no, that wasn't really the Elysian fields. This is the Elysian fields. A couple ways you can think about this. Either Dante is rewriting comedy. That is, he did intend for limbo to be like those fields, But now he's gone on in the poem and he's realized you can't really have the Elysian fields in Inferno. We need a 
better spot for them. And so I'm going to move them up in the poem and I'm going to have comedy essentially right over itself. I'm going to have comedy become a palimpsest manuscript written over another manuscript. I'm going to have comedy actually write over itself and redefine the fields. That's one way to say it. Or you could say that Dante is renegotiating his stance toward the Aeneid. Early on in comedy, the Aeneid is absolutely the foundational tome. And so when we hit the Elysian fields of limbo, we are using the Aeneid as kind of our touchstone text for the afterlife. But now that we have it here in Purgatorio, we're changing our conception of the Aeneid as maybe our full touchstone and moving toward more Christian sources. You could also say, and I don't favor this, but you could say it, that the limbo Elysian feels was a fake out. That is, Dante intentionally led you to believe these were the Elysian fields, and he did that so that when you finally came up to them in Purgatorio, you'd say, oh, wow, no, wait, that wasn't the real ones. These are the real ones here where it's so beautiful and verdant and green and famous figures are about to appear in front of us. I don't really hold that notion because it seems deceptive, and I don't see Dante as a deceptive poet. It also seems a little more postmodernly ironic. I might expect that kind of fake out move from mm, Philip Roth or John Bart, but I don't really expect it from Dante. I tend to think that, in fact, comedy is indeed rewriting itself as it goes forward. Again, I see this poem as partially in process, and this is part of what I would point to as partially in process. I'd point to a lot of things. I'd point to the changing notion of Virgil's character. I'd point to the fact that, um, oh, you know, like in the Malabolja of the Thieves, comedy seems to be coming suddenly a contest between various poets, and Dante's engaged in that contest. But then he drops that and he becomes much more humble in his poetry. He's negotiating his space in process. It, I don't, it's not that I don't think that he has some notion of where the poem's headed. Virgil, when he appears, says, OK, you're going to go through the world of sorrow. Then you're going to go through the world of penance, this place here. And then you're going to go on to the paradise that I can't take you to. Okay, Virgil does say that. And even right there, Virgil does seem to indicate somehow that he might be on the journey among the penitents here in Purgatorio, which he is. Dante may have a notion of where he's headed, but at the same time, the details are being negotiated under us as he moves forward in the creation of comedy. I would say that this is a distinct moment in which comedy is a palimpsest, in which the manuscript writes on top of itself to move the Elysian fields from their original location in limbo to here, where we are about to meet some very famous figures. Before we round out this episode, I'd like to go back and read all of Canto 7 up to this point. So Canto 7 lines 1 through 81 and thereby get you a running review before we hit 
the figures in the valley ahead. So let's start and go right through Canto 7. After these honorable and easygoing greetings had been reiterated three or four times, Sordalo took a step back and said, You guys, who are you? Before any souls worthy of climbing toward God were shown and turned toward this mountain, my bones had been interred by Octavian. I am Virgil, and for no other wickedness did I lose heaven than for not having faith. That was how my leader replied to that other soul. As a guy who suddenly sees something right in front of him, something that makes him marvel, both believing it and not saying all the while, it is, no, it isn't. So it was with this sort of Halo. He bowed his forehead and walked back humbly toward Virgil. He bent down low to clasp him as an inferior would. Oh, glory of the Latins, he said, through whom our language showed its full potential. Oh, timeless source of prestige for the spot I'm from. What merit or what grace presents you to me? If I'm worthy enough to hear your words, tell me if you came from hell and even from what cloister through all the circles of the kingdom of sorrow. Virgil replied to him, I have come to this spot. A power from the heavens set me in motion, and I come along with it, not because of what I did, but because of what I did not do. I lost a way to see the high sun that you so desire and that I came to understand too late. There's a place down there that's not sad because of torments, but only because of darkness, where the lamentations don't sound like wailings, but only like sighs. That's where I hang out, along with the innocent babies who got bit by the teeth of death long before they could be cleansed of human guilt. That's where I hang out, along with the ones who were not clothed in the three holy virtues, but who knew the other four without any other fault and followed them. But if you know and are able to point the way to us, then we can go more quickly to the spot where purgatory has its true beginning. Sordello replied, we're not set into a fixed place here. I'm allowed to go up and move around as far as possible. I'll be a guide for you, but see now how the day is fading? It's not possible for us to ascend by night. We should, therefore, think about a decent place to settle in. There are some souls set apart over there to the right. If you permit me, I'll lead them to you. You'll even find some delight in getting to know who they are. How can that be, came Virgil's response. If someone wanted to climb by night, would someone else stop him? Or would he truly not be able to go on? Good Sordello drew a line on the ground with his finger and said, Check it out. You can't even get across a line like this once the sun goes down. Not because something blocks you from doing so, just because of the dark of night in and of itself, which enchains the will in sheer inability. At nighttime, one can go back down and wander around without any purpose on the slope for as long as the horizon locks out the daylight. At that, with an astonished look, Virgil, my lord, said... Lead us then to the spot where you say we can find some delight as we settle in for some rest. We walked on a little ways from there. That's when I saw the mountain was carved out, just as the valleys carve out the mountains around here. The shade of Sordello said, We'll head over there, where the slope turns into a sort of lap. There we'll wait for the new day. A sloping path, not quite level, but not 
not really steep, brought us to the flank of that valley where its outer edge was more than half cut off. Golden, fine silver, cochineal, and white lead, indigo gems bright and clear, even a new emerald the moment it's cut. If any of that were set in that valley, it would all be surpassed when it comes to the color by the flowers and grasses that grew in that spot as less is surpassed by greater. Nature had not only painted that spot, but had blended the sweet scents of a thousand fragrances into a single indistinguishable aroma that I had never experienced before. I very much appreciate your support of this podcast. Remember that there is a PayPal link in both the show player and the show notes and on my website where you can donate to help me cover hosting, streaming, licensing, and website fees. That would be most appreciated. Also, a rating or even a review in whatever language and on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on would be most appreciated. But most appreciated of all, oh, I'm like done today. Look at me, I'm falling over myself for words. Most appreciated of all is just that you're on the journey with me making this walk through this incredible poem comedy that is always keeping us on our toes, even here. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you on the walk ahead. <laughs>